0: Christ is walking among the lampstands that represent His churches today. Through His Spirit, He has turned on the light, and through His Spirit, He sees everything that happens in every member's life.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington, Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part nine of his series titled The Seven Churches of Revelation. Tom is in the second and third chapter of Revelation, examining Christ's letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. As you've seen so far, the seven letters to these seven churches while indeed actual churches are also a representative peak into the larger church throughout history, even today. And so far, we've looked first at Ephesus, known for its loveless fidelity. Second, Smyrna, faithful in suffering. Third, Pergamum, known for its undiscerning tolerance. Fourth, Thyatira, struggling with listening and obeying an extra-biblical authority. Today, Tom will look at the fifth of the seven churches, the church in Sardis. Today, Tom will look at the fifth of the seven churches, the church in Sardis. Christ warns this congregation of the danger of having the appearance of a living and thriving church, but in fact, is spiritually dead. Keep that in mind as we join Tom right now on The Word Unleashed.
0: To the angel of the church in Sardis right? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father, And before his angels, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In this letter to the church in Sardis, Christ gives a message that we really could reduce to this. Christ warns his church, not only that church, but other churches like them, of the danger of having the appearance of a living, thriving church but in fact being spiritually dead. Sardis was characterized by dead Christianity. With each of the seven letters, as we walk our way through them, we're using the same basic outline that Christ does. He uses exactly the same structure in all seven letters, so I'm just following Christ's outline as we sort of work our way through each of these letters, and we'll do the same tonight. The letter begins with the introduction to the letter, the command to write in verse 1. Notice Christ says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write. Now, as we discovered, these letters were intended for all the members of the church, each of the members of each church, but they were sent to and through the key leaders of the church. That's the meaning of the expression, the angel of the church, the messenger of the church, the the key leader, probably the key elder, the teaching elder, perhaps, in each church. And that's the one to whom Christ tells John to write. Now, from this first line in Christ's letter here, we're reminded, first of all, of the character of the city. Notice he refers to the city as Sardis. Now, just to remind you, the order in which these seven letters appear in Revelation follows the natural route that a messenger who received this letter from John on the Isle of Patmos out in the Aegean Sea, came back to port in Ephesus, which is where he would have initially landed, he would have then worked his way north. If you can track with me here, you can see that here is Ephesus, and you move up to Smyrna, and then on up north to Pergamum, and then to Thyatira, and then back to Sardis. So that's how the messenger would have traveled. From Pergamum in the north, he would have traveled south to Thyatira, and then about 30 miles south of Thyatira was the city of Sardis, a city which was founded in a valley formed by the convergence of two rivers. The earliest city of Sardis was built on part of the range of the Timulus Mountains on top of that Acropolis is where the original city was built. The three sides of this Acropolis actually consisted at the time of 1,500-foot cliffs that were nearly perpendicular to the valley floor. There was access to the city only on the south side, but even that was a steep, winding, treacherous trail that was easily defended. It's said that a single soldier could have kept an army from coming up to the Acropolis. This made the ancient city nearly impregnable. But as the city grew, as its population grew, the small area on the top of the Acropolis could no longer hold the city. So beneath the Acropolis, down on the valley floor, they built the new city. The old city they kept as a fortress, a place of safety in the event that the city was attacked. All of the residents living there in the valley could, could go up to the Acropolis and find that fortress a place of protection, but the city began to sprawl across the valley below the Acropolis. The city began in 1200 BC. About 700 BC, the dominant power in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, was the Lydian kingdom and its capital was Sardis. The first king is actually credited with the one who started creating coins, gold and silver coins from bullion. So it started in Sardis. The most famous Lydian king was a man whose name you might recognize, it's Croesus. He was in the 500s BC and he was known for the gold that he panned from the nearby river. It was in the sixth century during his reign, Sardis, the city of Sardis was one of the most powerful in the ancient world. But things changed dramatically and don't miss this because this is gonna factor into Jesus' letter to this church. In the year 546, Cyrus the Persian captured Sardis. Later, the Greeks captured it as well. And then after the Greeks, of course, the, you remember the kingdom of Alexander was split and the Seleucids controlled this kingdom until the Romans defeated the Seleucids, Antiochus III, in 188 BC, and the Romans gave the city of Sardis to Pergamum. But then in the year 133 BC, the Romans took permanent control of the city of Sardis. Now, Sardis was at the junction of five ancient roads, and it commanded the entire Hermus Valley below it. So it became a very prosperous commercial city filled with gold, filled with trade, filled with wealth. In fact, its important king, Croesus, became associated as a sort of emblem of wealth it said that it was the result of midas and his touch that the city enjoyed the wealth that it had however the city was destroyed in ad 17 by a powerful earthquake along with about 11 other nearby cities thanks to the generosity of the emperor tiberius it was soon rebuilt and so it was a thriving city even in the days of Paul and later of John, but it had begun its decline. It, was, it really just had a shadow its, of its former glory. What it had mostly was its memories of greatness, but it had begun to decline. This city was the home of Solon, the great legislator, as well as Thales, the father of Greek philosophy. It's possible that Aesop, as in Aesop's fables, was from this city. Today, the modern city of Sart borrowing the name, stands in the location of the lower city of Sardis. Archaeologists have done a lot of excavations to the city, and they've made a number of significant finds, including a theater, a Roman theater, that seats 20,000 people. What about its religion? Well, there there was a large Jewish population at Sardis. There's been a large synagogue that was discovered there. But by far, the predominant religion was a pagan one. It was the worship of Sibeli. There's some discussion about the pronunciation. Some say Sibyl, some say Sibel, but uh, the sources I cited say it's Sibeli. Some believe that Sibeli is identical to Artemis of Ephesus. Others say no, they're distinct. But regardless, they were both fertility mother goddesses, and you can only imagine what the worship of these gods and go- or these goddesses was like. In Sardis, there was an unfinished temple dedicated to this goddess, and that temple measures 100 yards by 50 yards. It's huge. Just to give you an idea of its scope, there were 78 columns that held up the roof of this. As you can see, only two of them remain standing, Each of these 78 columns were 58 feet high. This temple was begun by Croesus but was never completed, ironically, and an earthquake covered this temple with landslides and it's only in modern times been excavated. There was also there a huge Roman center. You can see in the middle of the, at the top of this slide, a gymnasium. With marble courts, here is a closer-up picture of what that Roman gymnasium looked like. And as part of it, there was a marble court. It was a magnificent city. So that's the city. But what about the history of the church there? Again, notice verse 1, Paul says to the angel of the church in Sardis. Now, the New Testament doesn't record the founding of this church, but it likely occurred the same time as the other churches in the area during the three-year ministry of Paul in Ephesus. You remember Acts chapter 19 verse 10, it says that Paul was there in that area of Ephesus for over two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So the ministry spread to that entire region. That means this church was likely founded in the early 50s AD, but when Christ dictated this letter to them through the apostle John, it would have been about 40 to 45 years later. Let's move on then to the description of Christ. You remember that in each letter, Christ describes himself. He borrows from the vision back in chapter 1 to describe something about himself that is pertinent to the message he's going to deliver to each church. And so borrowing from that vision in his message to Sardis, Christ describes himself in two ways. First of all, he describes himself this way. Through his spirit, he sees all that happens in his church and at the same time, he is the source of its life. How do I get that? Well, look at the first expression, the first description. Verse 1, Christ says, tell them the one writing to them is he who has the seven spirits of God. Now, we've met a similar expression before. You remember back in chapter 1 verse 4 where it says the seven spirits who were before God's throne? In both cases, this description points to the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, You say, what what is the seven spirits? I thought there was one Holy Spirit. And the answer to that is there is. In fact, in Revelation, the Holy Spirit is referred to as one person at least 13 times. So this is not saying that there are many spirits. That's not the point. So what is the point then? Well, the spirit is not only referred to here as the seven spirits, but as the seven lamps of fire in chapter four, verse five, pointing to his omniscience and seven eyes, I'm sorry, pointing to his omnipresence and seven eyes pointing to his omniscience in chapter five, verse six. So the Holy Spirit then is referred to as the seven spirits in a, in a sort of symbolic way, a, a picturesque way It really points back, honestly, this description to the menorah, the lampstand with seven lamps in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. We looked at it when we studied chapter 1. It refers to the Holy Spirit. Now, why does Christ use this expression here? Why is he talking about the Holy Spirit in reference to the church in Sardis? I think Christ intends to remind the believers in Sardis of two important spiritual realities by mentioning the Spirit. First of all, as the Spirit is represented by torches, that which gives light, and eyes, that which sees, and seven lights or lamps and torches, and seven eyes, the picture is that through His Spirit, Christ illumines and sees everything that happens in every church, including into the hearts of each of its members. That's, a, that's an interesting thing to think about. You know, I think it's easy for us to think of ourselves as so far removed from the events that we're studying as if that doesn't happen here. Let me just tell you something. Christ is walking among the lampstands that represent his churches today. And through his spirit, he has turned on the light and through his spirit, he sees everything that happens in this church. He sees everything that happens in every member's life. That's the point. I think there's another reason he mentions the spirit here. You remember the spirit is often called the spirit of life. There are a number of references we could look at, but I think the point he's making is this. It is only through Christ's spirit that this dead church... That we're going to look at can come to life. It's the spirit of life that can do this and only the spirit of life. The second description of Christ here is that he controls the church's leaders and will hold them accountable for their leadership. Notice what he says in verse 1, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, that's borrowed from chapter 1, and there Christ described himself as, or, or John saw him as holding these seven stars in his right hand. And we're told in verse 20 of chapter 1 that they represent the, the key leaders or the, the leading elders, one from each of the seven churches. The point is, Jesus controls them, and he will hold them accountable for the leadership they demonstrate, as we will see, sadly, the leaders had failed the church in Sardis. And at the outset of this letter, Christ reminds them that he will hold them responsible for that failure. So that's the introduction to the letter. We've seen the character of the city, a brief history of the church, and Christ uniquely describes himself in a way that suits the message he's gonna deliver to this church. That brings us to the body of the letter, the actual state of this church. Now, what's interesting is our Lord began his letters to the previous four churches with a commendation, but not Sardis. He has nothing immediately good to say about this church. There will be something. It'll come. But he begins immediately instead with a correction of the sin. Look at verse 1. I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. As with the other churches... All seven of them our Lord begins with these haunting words I know I know I know he knows the true state of this church regardless of its appearance notice he says I know your deeds what does he mean well he goes on to explain what he means in the next phrase I know your deeds and here's what I mean by that you have a name that you are alive but you are dead Our Lord's diagnosis of the problem in this church is that it is spiritually dead. Although its members professed faith in him, for most it was a lifeless profession. This church had a name, we could say a reputation, that it was spiritually alive. Collectively, they professed to be followers of Christ. I'm sure they met on the Lord's Day. They had all kinds of social activities. They sought to have a presence in their community. People gave to support the ministries of the church, and members gave of their time to serve. If you had lived in Sardis and passed the place where this church met, you would have seen what appeared to be a thriving community of faith. But here's what the Lord saw. Verse 1, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. The church in Sardis was like a a B-class horror movie. It was the home of the walking dead. This church was like the ship in the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It was manned by the dead. Most of the members of this church were spiritually dead. They were playing church. Now what makes this church remarkable is, you remember back in the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira, there were unbelievers, but they were in the minority. In Sardis, they were the majority. That's Jesus' correction of what's going on in this church. And in light of what he identifies, there's a call for repentance beginning in verse 2. Christ's prescription to bring this dead church to life includes five imperatives. And those five imperatives mark out five steps on the path for this church to return to the spiritual life and health that it had enjoyed 45 years ago ago at its founding. What are these imperatives? What are these steps? How does a dead church repent? First of all, Jesus says, Wake up. It's the first step. Wake up. Verse 2 Wake up. Now, it's probably better to translate this as show or prove yourself to be alert, to be watchful. So if we wanted to give it a paraphrase, we could say it this way, wake up and be alert and keep being alert, be on guard. Now, the moment Christ said this and i should say the moment that this letter from christ was read in the church in sardis i can tell you that it resounded like a thunderbolt to the congregation there because of its history i've already marked out for you that the city had been built on what seemed like an invincible acropolis so the people became careless nobody can take us when the when the armies came they simply retreated in mass up to the Acropolis, sealed the gate, put a guard at the one place that the hill could be accessed, accessed, and they were safe. But on two separate occasions, this invincible city had been taken because its military failed to be watchful. In both cases, a city which was so easily defended fell to its enemies because of the failure to stay alert to danger. Wake up and stay alert. Tragically, the same thing was happening to the church. Jesus says, you need, you need to wake up. You need to realize that you are more vulnerable than you realize. You need to stay on your guard. Wake up. Secondly, Jesus says, strengthen. Verse 2 says, and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. The church as a whole was dead. But there were still some spiritual activities, wholesome, right, biblical, spiritual activities that survived. They were being done by dead people, mostly, but they were there, they were happening. But these things, if left unaddressed, they too would die soon. Verse 2 goes on to say, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Notice that word found, that verb in this context implies a judicial investigation of the facts. After Christ searched through all of their works as a church, there were not found any that were completed in the sight of my God. In other words, there were none that met God's standard, not primarily in quantity, but in quality. They didn't measure up. Their deeds looked good to their contemporaries, but not to God. They were like that fig tree. You remember in Mark 11 that Jesus cursed when he saw that it had leaves and a a tree in leaf like that shouldn't have had mature figs, but it should have had those small little green figs that he could have eaten and it had none. And Jesus cursed it, not because he was somehow given to fits of anger, but because it was an object lesson. The same thing was happening down on the Temple Mount where he was about to go. That is, The worship of God at the Temple Mount was all leaves but no fruit.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 9 of his series, The Seven Churches of Revelation. Tom will have Part 10 for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, Tom, what should a believer do if uh, he or she comes to realize the church they've been attending is or has become in fact spiritually dead
0: you know bill i think the most important thing is just to understand that that can happen that you and i can belong to a church that's spiritually dead in the assessment of jesus christ and so it's crucial that we we study this letter that we understand the parameters that that describe a dead church and tune in next time because we're going to look at how we as individuals should respond, what what spiritually dead churches are supposed to do, and what believers who are attached to them are supposed to do as well. So I hope you'll tune in as we look at how we respond if we wake up and discover that we're in a church like this one.
1: We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, We'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed.